Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. So today we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And Alan, why don't you get us started? What's our topic for today? Well, we're, we're, we're going to talk about the, the Magi, and um, we decided to do this one because it only shows up here in Matthew yeah. in the Revised Common Lectionary, so um, gives us an opportunity to talk about this passage. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is you know, um, as we've said before, um, all of Matthew's infancy narrative is unique, and so this is another story that's only found in Matthew. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to remind everybody, I know we, we talked about this more at length last week, but I'd just like to remind everyone again that it's impossible to harmonize Matthew's infancy narrative with Luke's, although, you know, a lot of people have tried to do it over the over the centuries. Um, they, they do have similar motives, but they tell two very different mm. stories. Right. And so, basically, Matthew's infancy narrative continues to introduce major themes of the gospel as a whole, mm-hmm. m- much like Luke's did, but Matthew has his themes that are different. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So um, th- this uh, this account in Matthew actually causes some some problems right at the beginning. It um, does. It does. The opening phrase in the Greek text is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and that may very well have been a major point of contention in that day. It was known generally that Jesus was from Nazareth. I mean, he's known to be Jesus of Nazareth, right? Right. And in fact, John's gospel reports that this was an obstacle to the crowd affirming that Jesus was the Messiah because he was known to have come from Nazareth and not from Bethlehem. And that's in John chapter 7, verses 40 to 43. And so the central issue for this part of Matthew's infancy narrative is precisely the question of where Jesus was born. Matthew insists that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in order to demonstrate that he is the son of David, as he mentioned in Matthew 1.1. Um, and, but as we observed last week, outside of, of Matthew's infancy narrative, outside of Luke's infancy narrative, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is never mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament. And so that's, that's, that's part of the question is, right. if this was so important, why was it just kind of passed over by the rest but of the New Testament? Of course... You know, when you think of Mark, he doesn't even include no, I this, this infancy narrative at all. So I'm thinking, if, though, of, of, of Paul, Paul's letters. Well, and, of and, course, you know. right. And in fact, even, you know, if you look at the phrase son of David, um, son of David only occurs in the, in the synoptic gospels. And, and David's, uh, Jesus' descent from David is only mentioned at like three times in the whole rest of the New Testament. It's, again, it's not really a major feature of New Testament Christology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David. Interesting. So it's, it's, this but, is something that's important yeah. apparently for Matthew and for Luke, but outside well, of, outside of, in the rest of the New Testament, they it, don't bring it. But would it have been important to Paul since he was indeed the apostle to the <clears throat> Gentiles? I mean, which this is kind of an important thing for the, the Jewish heritage. I, I, I just, you know, it, it's just interesting, it, right? It, it, it seems to me that for both Matthew and Luke, 
it's, a, it's, it's important to establish that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to establish that he came as came the as Messiah. Messiah. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. of course, Messiah or Christ is one of the central affirmations of New Testament right. Christology throughout, right? Mm-hmm. And so why didn't the rest of the New Testament writers make that connection? That's, that's just the... It is. Because Paul makes, Paul makes all, kinds of, all kinds of connections with the Hebrew Bible in his letters, you know, even to the Gentile churches. Don't you wish you could just be in that conversation? <laughs> well, right, right. <laughs> I mean, oh, well, there are times. I mean, you know, and... and John Meyer, who is a Roman Catholic scholar, New Testament scholar, he wrote a three-volume definitive history of Jesus in the later part of the 20th century. He basically concludes that Jesus must have been born in Nazareth. Okay. And, and yeah. you know, yeah, if you, think about, you, the, if, if you yeah. think about the, uh, the, the logic, is it, more, is, it, is it easier to see that Jesus was born in Nazareth and it was, it was changed to Bethlehem for theological reasons, or that he was born in Bethlehem, what reason would it be for him to be cha- for it to be changed to Nazareth? Well, that's hard to hard that, to imagine. That's where he grew up, right? right that right. that would have been his dialect. That would have been his. Yeah, I, it is an interesting question. Yeah. Question, though, certainly, yeah. but but and it probably isn't at the end of the day that big of a deal, right? Probably it, not. You know, in, in in our tradition anyway, we, we don't tend to tend to have these little archaeological sites exactly what we shouldn't be anyway i think we, we don't should. need we don't need to know exactly where jesus was born in order to believe in him as our right. savior and lord leading <laughs> us to when is do we really need to know when well, right and, and that even <laughs> seems to be less important to matthew um matthew says literally in the days of herod the king well herod the days of herod the king were from 37 to 4 bce so that's that's a very imprecise dating um Right, right. I mean, Herod the Great was an Edomian or an Edomite who was born to a half-Jewish father, and his ethnic identity, as well as the fact that during his reign, he was a client of the Roman Empire, offended the Jewish people. Matthew, I think, though, is more interested in Herod's identity as the king, and we'll see that the word king occurs several times in this passage alone. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be an issue for him. And so the conflict that Jesus' birth as the son of David creates with the powers that be seems to be an issue that, uh, that, that Matthew wants to, wants to bring out. It's a theme that we're going to see in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will proclaim and even inaugurate the kingdom of heaven, but the human authorities will mm-hmm. resist him. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Then the next piece of this are these magi. Again, there's a little bit of mystery around them as yeah. well. Well, and it might I, I I think it might even considered ironic that Matthew, you know, considered to be the Jewish gospel, introduces themes that are going to be central yes. to his narrative of the gospel with the arrival of Magi from the East. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, which are not Jewish, right? Right, exactly. So these you know, it's often translated "wise men" or some, some. A lot of New Testament, a lot of um, a lot of recent English Bibles use "magi." Just simply transliterate mm-hmm. the yeah. word. It's "megos." Um, they probably represented the best wisdom of the Gentile world, which was widely believed to come from the East. Mm-hmm. But we really don't know where the East was. Um, you know, only in later Christian tradition were they identified as kings, and only in later Christian tradition were there said to have been three of them. Matthew tells us none of this. He doesn't tell us doesn't really tell us where they're from. He doesn't tell us that they're 
kings. He doesn't tell us how many there are. Mm -hmm. Now, the origin of the term likely refers to Persian astrologer priests who were learned in all kinds of mm -hmm. wisdom. We, we run across them in Daniel when, when, right. when right. Nebuchadnezzar summons these various scholars of his court to interpret mm -hmm. his dream. Um, so a lot of people tend to assume, well, they must have come from Persia or from Babylonia. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks in the early church followed the lead of uh, Psalm, 72, um, Psalm 71 in the Septuagint, Psalm 72 in the Hebrew Bible, which pointed to Arabia as the origin origin for for um, the the Magi, and and that's a possibility in in the first century world. Arabia was known as in the east, right? And so you know the, those are those are a couple of options. Uh, some have even suggested Ethiopia. We don't really know, right? We well, don't know where the east you know, was. And what's really interesting about this now is you know so much of so much of the connection with the Roman Empire, with the rest of the world, was kind of lost, if you mm -hmm. will, during the medieval period. And um, we now know that Silk Road was really well established, even yeah. at this time. Yeah. So these people could have come they could have. from China. Now, that's never been asserted because at least when this was believed... They didn't think they had that much connection, but now right. we are finding oh, really? that that was already yeah. yeah. There's some. It's there's some. The world was much more connected at this particular mm -hmm. time than we even were aware of until sure. fairly recently. I used to do some work with um, world history and, and Silk Road studies, and yeah, it, it's already going. Yeah. So yeah, these people yeah. could have come yeah. from all kinds. Oh of yeah. Places. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, and as I said, in 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 that day, it was sort of a traditional notion that was kind of widespread and shared by a number of cultures that that wisdom was be widely believed to come from the east. Oh for yeah. Some reason, well. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we obviously, all the stuff that had gone on in Persia itself was right. was was right. greatly respected. But yeah, right. and beyond that, uh, you know, if indeed they had tapped into China, there was all kinds of things that right. they were doing that um, <laughs> that were not being done in the Roman Empire. So, so you know, in Jewish in the Jewish world and later in Christian circles, the the term Magos had a mostly negative connotation, but there's no hint that these magi constituted adversaries to Jesus. Uh, from the perspective of the Gentile world, they simply would have been seen as wise and learned men. And that's the way Tom Wright in his New Testament for Everyone mm. actually translate this phrase, mm. that they were wise and learned men okay. who had come. Now, so the, the magi then represent the elite of the Gentile world, who in contrast with the elite of the Jewish world, have come to pay homage to and perhaps to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Now, the Greek word proskuneo here probably has a double nuance. Um, probably here, you know, for the Magi, they probably came to pay homage to this newborn king. But we should note that in the rest of Matthew, whenever proskuneo occurs, it means to worship. Mm. And it's an action mm -hmm. that's, that's proper for God. And whether or not the Magi understood that much about Jesus, I don't know that we can know. So I think, I think we should see a double nuance here, that, that they came to pay homage, but perhaps Matthew was sort of hinting that they were doing, that their actions conveyed more than they knew. <laughs> well, right, right, yeah. And the, the, the reformers are going to have some questions about that too right. you know um what what did they know and what did anybody know i mean right. at this point 
you know, obviously right. <laughs> it's <Right>. a baby. Right. <laughs> Jesus is a baby. So the whole point then of the appearance of the Magi is to introduce to the in the infancy narrative of Matthew the theme of a mission mm-hmm. to the Gentiles. Um, who are called later on in Matthew twenty one forty three and the interpretation of the um, 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 the t- wicked tenant farmers um, that the Gentiles are the people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. that Jesus says will be taken away from the Jewish leaders. That's Matthew twenty one yep. forty three, and so this is a theme in Matthew, and um, I think, and it, actually this is this is something this this recognition that that the Magi bring this theme out has goes back to antiquity. I mean, early mm-hmm. Christian fathers recognize sure. this sure. as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I've always thought of it too, just in the acknowledgement, almost like a like a poof text for mm-hmm. Jesus, if you mm-hmm. will, you know, right. in the, in sure. the world. Um, and, and that's just, that's just always how I've kind of, I've read it. It's like, Oh, and here are these other people that can attest from outside that here he is. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and we'll, I'm, I'll comment about that a little bit later on, but um, yeah. So the, then the reason for the Magi coming to Jerusalem is they say, we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Now, Ente Anatole is is translated oftentimes in in the East, and it's funny because if you look at the New Revised Standard Version and you look at the new updated edition of the New Revised Standard Version, there's they kind of flip flop on this, which I find to be interesting. But um, um, Blast de Brunner and Funk in their one of the, they're one of the reference grammars of the Greek New Testament mm-hmm. make a point to say that that that. Um, Directions as points on the compass never occur with a definite article, as it does here. Oh, so mm-hmm. ente anatole probably refers to the action of rising or anateline. Anatello mm. is the core is the cognate verb. Oh, okay, so that's why that's why many English translations say we have observed his star at its rising. Mm. Again, the star raises problems, especially for those <laughs> of us in the modern era. There have been efforts to identify some natural phenomenon that may have served as the basis for the star that the Magi saw as the sign of the birth of the King of the Jews, but this is unlikely. I mean, we're not dealing with a natural phenomenon mm-hmm. here. We're dealing with a star that, Matthew says, went ahead of them on their six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, mm-hmm. and then it stopped over the place where the child was. And, and in fact, <clears throat> um, um, there's a there's a, a probably a second thir- or third century um, uh, infancy gospel called the Protevangelium of James, and in and in one there's a manuscript of the Protevangelium of James that says that the star actually moved to 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 the place where it was over the child's head, <laughs> so, and right. even even someone like Chrysostom pointed out, you know that. You know, a star up in the sky couldn't have pointed out the location so precisely. So it came down to 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 rest over the place where Jesus was, <laughs> and and again, uh, you know, no natural phenomenon could have done that. This is not we're, we're not talking about a natural phenomenon, right. and, and in fact, right. a lot of people in the early church began to began to believe that this must have been an angel. 
Right, something, something different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, already in the in in the early church, they realized, you know, that that stars don't do this kind of thing. Right, right. And Calvin <laughs> will deal with some of this too um, um, when, when we get to my portion. But uh, yeah, it, what 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 is it? In? Yeah. But it is interesting today because this is a a big deal with some of the literalists today. I mean, they, it is, it is. They, there are people who, who really go to great lengths to try to rescue the, the literal historicity of Matthew here. Mm-hmm. And, and they miss the point because the point is simply that, that they are being divinely led. Right. That's the point yes. is that they're being led by God exactly. on their journey. Yes. Yes. And, and this is a way for Matthew to, to, to describe this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in the context, I think we're likely dealing with two issues. And first mm-hmm. is the notion that the birth of a king or a prophet or a savior or a sage would be heralded by some kind of unique astronomical phenomenon. And in fact, um, Davies and Allison mm-hmm. in their three-volume commentary say this was a worldwide notion. And they cite Greco-Roman, Jewish, mm-hmm. Muslim, and even Chinese traditions that, that associated unique astronomical phenomenon phenomenon with the birth of a great figure so yes that is true that is true that is so so you know this kind of notion was was sort of uh assumed Mm -hmm. in that day And, and so matthew you know could have been drawing on that but more to the point perhaps for matthew's jewish christian audience is the likely connection with the prophetic declaration of balaam about mm-hmm. the people of israel he says in numbers 24:17 that a star shall come out of jacob and a scepter shall rise out of israel now interestingly again it's the word it's the verb anatello so again mm-hmm. the uh, in inte anatole right in the east or at its rising so a star shall rise, and it's the verb anatello, and so that verbal connection, I think, makes it even more, more likely. One interesting note about the Septuagint is that while the Hebrew Bible says a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, the Septuagint says a star will rise out of Jacob and a man will rise out, oh. of, out of Israel. Huh. A man that's which, really which, interesting. Uh, New Testament scholars in- interpret that as uh, the Septuagint giving it a messianic interpretation. Uh, yeah, uh, that would make sense. But yeah. what a, yeah, that's one I certainly wouldn't have picked up on since I don't tend to look into those. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. and so now, so we know that later church fathers certainly made the connection between the star and Matthew's gospel and Numbers twenty four seventeen. We also know that in Jewish circles, Numbers twenty four seventeen had a kind of messianic interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible, if not even likely, that Matthew and his community saw in this story of the Magi being led to acknowledge Jesus by a star, they, they saw the fulfillment of the star of the new king in Balaam's original oracle in, in, Matthew, in Numbers chapter 24. So I think, I think these are some things that are playing into the way Matthew is crafting his narrative. The general widely held assumption that a star or right. some sort of astronomical phenomena would appear at, a, at, a, at, the, at the birth of a special person. But more than that, we have this, we have this um, scriptural mm-hmm. uh, text that speaks of a star coming out of right. Jacob and, and a, a scepter It's actually really pretty, pretty brilliant how he's bringing all these in mm-hmm. to, to kind of capture our, our attention and awareness of what's going on. I mean... Yep. Yeah. I mean, he could have let, I always think, well, what if he'd left that out? Yeah. What if he would have, yeah. you know, what, what would be missing from our, 
from understanding of the text. Right. So, well, you know, and one thing we must we should note is that Matthew doesn't quote Numbers twenty four seventeen, right. which is kind of unusual for Matthew. You might expect him to do that because he quotes things all over the place, right? right? But um, nevertheless, there seems to be a, a, a strong enough connection here to to think that it's at least possible, if not likely, that Matthew was, oh, was influenced so. by this. Oh, I think so. I don't yeah. think that would have been missed by Matthew at all. Yeah. 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 All right. So then... So, yes. So going on. <laughs> yeah. So then Matthew continues his narrative by telling us that when King Herod heard this, he was frightened in all Jerusalem with him. That Herod was troubled or distressed, which is the word uh, terasso in, in the Greek, by the announcement of the Magi that there was a newborn king of the Jews points to the conflict that Jesus will provoke from the powers that be by his ministry and message mm-hmm. in Matthew's gospel. And again, that's a theme in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. Here, he already provokes this conflict simply by being born. Right. And the fact that Matthew includes all Jerusalem in Herod's distress yeah. Most people seem to connect this with the fact that, that the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem would oppose mm-hmm. and reject Jesus and ultimately have him executed. So again, it sort of points forward to right. uh, the fact that Jerusalem is going to be a center of opposition against Jesus. And you know, before doing this podcast today, that was a all Jerusalem was something I kind of mentally just kind of skipped over mm-hmm. i think a lot of people do when mm-hmm. you're l- reading the whole of the story but the reformers made a really big deal about this mm-hmm. and um i think this has a, as much that this is included is is much more important than maybe i had given it in the past so well again it's my understanding that even even this idea uh goes back to uh, early church mm-hmm. uh, fathers comment commenting on as well yeah oh yeah yeah i th- i think so all right so um what what happens with Herod and the and the and Magi? So Herod tells or Matthew tells us that Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And so together, basically, the chief priests who would have represented the party of the Sadducees mm-hmm. and the scribes of the people who were connected to the party of the Pharisees represented the Jewish religious leaders as a whole. And Matthew's narrative moves from the Magi asking where they could find the newborn king of the Jews to Herod's question where the Messiah was expected to be born. And I don't think we should overlook this because the idea that Jesus is the Messiah is precisely the Mm-hmm. what the Jewish religious leaders will reject about Jesus. Right. So, you know, the, the Magi talk about the newborn king of the Jews. Herod moves to the question about the Messiah. That's an interesting move in Matthew's gospel. It, it really is. <laughs> I do think that's an important leap. For, yeah. and, and Herod paranoia, I think it kind of reflects Herod's paranoia. It does. Right? But really, I think in Matthew's context, it's, it's, it's leading up. It's, I mean, he's basically, it's leading up to the Jewish religious leaders. So the Jewish religious leaders are going to answer Herod's question, and they're going to cite Micah 5.2 in combination with 2 Samuel 5.2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet in you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. That's a combined citation of, of Micah 5.2 and Second yeah. Samuel 5.2. And so in Matthew's gospel, the, the chief priests and the scribes of the people know where the Messiah is going to be born. Right. Here are these magi who say, you know, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star mm-hmm. and we've come to worship him or to pay right. homage to him. And so th- they've got these, these, these learned men from the East coming and, and, and 
announcing to them that hey, there's a there's a there's a new Messiah, there's a new king. Herod, Herod interprets it as the Messiah. The 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 chief priests and the scribes follow Herod's line of interpretation, and then they don't do anything about it. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the 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 flow of this is to show that that the, the Jewish religious leaders know enough to be able to cite the scripture, but they don't know enough to be able to follow through by, by going with the Magi to worship Jesus. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, that's, again, something else the reformers will respond to, so we'll have to see yeah. what they say. But. So now we, we do need to note that the reference to Micah 5.2 follows neither the Hebrew Bible right. nor the Septuagint here, but right. it is an example of sort of quoting Scripture with what I call interpretive yeah. alterations. Yeah. And and this is something that's found not only in the New Testament, but also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You right. see this happening. Um, uh, you, see, you see people citing a Scripture passage with the interpretation mm-hmm. of it written into the wording of the citation. And Calvin actually addresses this, and I I didn't go about this with Calvin, but Calvin found this to be a common practice, and um, he he thought it might have also come somewhat from memory, or Mm -hmm. memory in conjunction with whatever point. I think it. I think it was intentional. You, like I said, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty common phenomenon in the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. and and so it seems that it was, at least among some circles, it was an accepted method of of citing scripture was to cite it with the interpretation. Um, so, for example, here, um, the point of the text in the Hebrew Bible is that Bethlehem is in fact the least. Mm-hmm. among the rulers of Judah. But Matthew turns this around in light of the birth of the son of David and the Messiah in Bethlehem. And so he says, mm-hmm. you are by no means among the, right. the least right. among the rulers yeah. of Judah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, Matthew completes the quotation with Second with Samuel 5, 2, um, from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel, which was originally addressed to David. And again, this contributes to Matthew's emphasis mm-hmm. that Jesus is the son of David. right. right. Interesting stuff. All right. So um, why don't the chief priests and the scribes really do anything? So they know this information, they don't follow through. And that's, I, I think that's, that's really the question that Matthew wants us to ask. He wants us to notice that the chief priests and the scribes of the people are able to answer the question of the Magi from Scripture. And mm-hmm. again, for centuries, beginning in the early church, this a lot of people have seen that Perhaps this points to the fact that the wisdom of the Magi was was lacking, and it could only be fully supplied, you know, by Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of a polemic, you know, uh, you know, between Scripture and and sort of this wisdom of the East going on. But the fact that the the chief priests and the scribes are able to answer the question of the Magi from Scripture, but they do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Is is that's I think Matthew wants us to notice that and wants us to ask why. Why now well, later on Jesus is going to you know there's a whole chapter in Matthew right. chapter 23 where Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders, right. and he starts well, it I off. I think it starts here. Doesn't it? Well, it does. It does. But but he starts off that chapter in, in Matthew 23, 3 by saying, you know, do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. Right. And so, you know, 
that's going to become a, a whole chapter in right. Matthew's gospel. And so here we get the beginning of it, which we see it, which yeah. does make which does make sense. And when when you think about it on the large scale too, even though they know they're in their own world of power and of interpretive um, genius, if you will, and therefore, why would they want to change that well, status quo? Uh, and especially, you know, their their world, their religious world, was centered on the temple. Yep, not exactly. centered on a baby. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Very good. Now, by contrast, then we see the Magi, who were essentially pagans in the eyes of the religious leaders, right. following the direction of Scripture and mm-hmm. going That's to Bethlehem. Very interesting, isn't to, it? To 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 pay homage to to Jesus. Well, right. and I think it it is interesting how, if you will, the Holy Spirit will work in different people, right, mm-hmm. and 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 how people will respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's one of Matthew's themes, particularly here, emphases, but it's something I picked up on reading it. You sure. Know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hit the end of our story. How does this end? Right. So Matthew then tells us that Herod secretly called for the Magi to learn when the star had appeared and then instructed them to search diligently for the child and report back to him. And we don't, you know, I don't really feel like we yet know Herod's full intention, but this does set up the rest of the narrative that will follow, especially the murder of the innocents that, that we talked about last mm-hmm. week. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you know, when you read the whole story, you realize that, that Herod was likely plotting to, to, to take some sort of action like this, and, and that's why he secretly met with the Magi and, and mm-hmm. asked them to report back to him. Mm-hmm. So then Matthew completes the story by telling us when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, or that they had seen at his rising, probably should be the translation, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy and again we've commented on how no right. star does this kind of thing right but basically after the magi receive, receive instruction from scripture as to the place of jesus birth they continue to receive the divine guidance mm-hmm. that they have received all that they right. that brought them there right and right. so the divine guidance leads them to jesus Right, and then Matthew continues on on once the Magi are actually there. Right, and so he says, on entering the house, they saw the child with his with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it is of note that they entered a house, not a cave or a stable. Right. When they find the child, they fulfill their intention to pay him homage or to worship him. Again, probably a dual connotation going on in Matthew. Now, although, although Matthew does not explicitly cite them, it is likely that in the act of the Magi seeking out and paying homage to or, or worshiping and giving gifts to Jesus, that Matthew saw them as it fulfilling the expectation of the final pilgrimage of the nations to worship mm-hmm. the one true God. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme especially in Isaiah and in other, some of the other mm-hmm. prophets. Right. We see it especially in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6, which is one of the readings for Epiphany Sunday. Right, right. Um, and, and in verse 3, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And in verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall mm-hmm. proclaim the praise of the Lord. And so, you know, this was likely the origin, the idea that Magi were kings in the, with the early church mm-hmm. fathers. And 
we also see in the early church, beginning already in the second century with Irenaeus, that there was a very traditional interpretation of the gifts. Gold mm-hmm. was to recognize Jesus' kingship. Frankincense was to recognize his divinity. Mm-hmm. And myrrh was to recognize that he would die. There really is no basis for that. <laughs> and as you'll see, Calvin's, Calvin questions this as well. So well, and, is, and yeah. there have been all kinds of different spiritualized interpretations of the, of the gifts. There's really no way to... to mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the point of the fact is that, that these are valuable gifts. Frankincense and myrrh along with gold, these were valuable gifts. And so the point of the Magi worshiping and presenting valuable gifts to him is that Matthew sees in them the beginning of the fulfillment of the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's saving plan. Mm-hmm. They yeah. they represent sort of the first of the of the Gentiles who are going to make this pilgrimage to come and worship the one true God. Fascinating. I, I, I'm... I'm I'm stuck on it only because it is interesting how that tradition in the early church, in the particular that tradition, has still comes down to I us. Know, I you know, know, and and it is it is it is interesting which pieces of that that people just continue to hang on to. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, in the Syrian church, there was a tradition that there were twelve, twelve magi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the in the in the company, and so you know, we can't know how many there were. Right, we, can, we can't know where they were from. We we don't know. You know, we don't know exactly. Matthew doesn't tell us. Yeah. That's not the point. Because the, this <laughs> is a I story think, about Jesus. You know, as we're talking, I think that's really important. As as we're looking at what the point is, not mm. with and we particularly these stories we love um, that are so much part of the tradition and the lore. Mm-hmm. We tend to put more emphasis on the wrong place yep. than we do on what what is really the point of the scripture and yeah. the uh, point is this is about jesus yeah, yeah 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 so then matthew concludes by telling us that having been warned in a dream not to return to herod they left for their own country by another road and again the implication is that the magi received divine guidance in this dream mm-hmm. And in the sequel to this story, of course, we learn that their obedience to the guidance they received allows Jesus' life to be spared, Herod's murderous mm-hmm. intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we talked about, this is this is this is the basically the end of. Well, we have the the one we've already done, but but in terms of uh, what we will talk about, the end of Matthew's infancy narrative. Yeah, and we'll move on to something different. Right, and, and as we've seen over the last few weeks, Matthew's infancy narrative tells the story of Jesus' birth as a way of demonstrating that he represents the fulfillment of the hope for God's salvation. Mm-hmm. But moreover, just like Luke does, Matthew anticipates themes in his infancy narrative that he will develop in his gospel narrative as a whole, including the clash of kings and kingdoms, mm-hmm including the rejection of Jesus by the yep. Jewish leaders and Jesus' eventual execution at their hands as one accused of pretending to be, be the, the king, king of the, the Jews. Jews. This is a, a clear echo mm-hmm. from the passion narrative. And then the mission to the Gentiles as anticipated by the worship of the Magi. And these are all in central themes in Matthew's yeah. gospel that he introduces for us. And here it is. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you.
Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what uh, Christy found in the Reformer. So, Christy, tell us what you found. Sure. And I looked at a bunch of commentaries today and found some themes that are here, and um, some are going to be expected, and some will be kind of curious what they came up with. But, um, you know, I think... um, for the reformers, they use this scripture as kind of a historical fact, as a, as a marker of the life of Jesus, and um, one that Matthew alone recorded, but he is in agreement with the other Gospels. Now, of course, that fits with our time. Right. Um, and so Calvin, for example, believed this passage was important to the entire story. Um, and they provide that kind of a bridge between the human world and the spiritual world. And he notes, of course, that Jesus is born without the splendor of an earthly king that would be, and yet the Magi come. Um, And he also noted that the Magi provided an important role in recognizing Jesus in the broader world um, as he would be despised by his own people. Sure. So, um, so who are these Magi um, who follow the star? And Calvin acknowledges that the Magi, um, that, that, that word, is a title for astrologers and wise men and refer to the Persians and Chaldeans in his, his case. And so the, Ch- the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that's the Neo-Babylonians. Um, and um, Luther, however, downplays this status, right? If, if, if the early church was calling these folks kings and Calvin is calling them astrologers and wise men, which we think is probably a pretty appropriate title, Luther's like, nope, they are common, honest people, just mm. like the learned in the clergy. So that's what Luther acknowledges they are. Um, and he don't, and I, I just think that has something to do with, in Luther's case, this, this idea of, of Jesus came for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and, and downplaying kind of the, the hierarchy sure. of people. Sure. Um, he notes, Calvin, that we don't know how many came of these magi and claimed that the tradition of three is an error made by the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it came really in the early church. Right, yeah. it did. It he, did. Does, he does note that an ancient writing that had been attributed to Chrysostom said there were 14 wise men. Um, and while this particular source is unreliable, I think it helps shift the mind from the assumption that there were three. Um, he also, Calvin, criticizes the Roman Catholic Church for making the Magi kings, right? So we set the tradition um, um, that these three king idea in later commentaries does appear depending on which, which person you're reading. So in other words, there's still people that kind of follow that tradition mm-hmm. here. And, and, and so there's no... So you don't get that kind of agreement. It's not like all the reformers come in and recognize that these are wise men. Imagine there might be a whole bunch, but some of them are still stuck hmm. on that old tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some, at least Calvin says, they, he thinks that the assumption may have come from reading into Psalm 71.10, where it says that kings shall come from Tarshish and the Isle of Saba. But as Calvin points out, this must have turned them south and west into east. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> well, and that that's Psalm seventy one ten. That's Psalm seventy one ten in the Septuagint, but in right, the Hebrew right, Bible, it's Psalm seventy two. Yes, yeah. right, right, yeah. right, right. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not familiar with that, the numbering isn't isn't consistent. It's not consistent, yeah, right? right. Mm-hmm. I um, I did um, um, the Chichester Psalms, and so uh, I sang this a few few years back, and the 
the Psalms that we were singing in Hebrew didn't line up, right, with right. ones in the Bible. I had to find them. So, right. yes, fully right. aware of this, this right. phenomenon. But not everybody is, so know that, right? <laughs> um, but I love Calvin's analysis of this whole East-West because he takes the East so literally in this mm-hmm. case. Um, and we just talked about that as not necessarily being an, an accurate kind of mm-hmm. way of describing direction. So... Um, Another thing that Calvin does that I think is interesting is com- uh, comment on the nature of the star um, is this, and, and he starts to ask these questions about the natural world or it being something supernatural. And um, I think that's a huge step. And I, I actually will put Calvin into the context of the scientific rev- rev- revolution because I think people forget that Calvin's this, early modern guys. So he's starting to ask some really interesting questions, I think. Um, And he asked, look, is this a star created in the beginning, you know, and, and, or did the study of quote astrology lead them to the Christ child? Important. There's not really astronomy yet. We have these early astronomers at this time, but they're not, you know, we're still talking Right, astrology. It was a sort of a combination it, of it was. It was. It was. It was observing what they could see in the sky for the stamp for the purpose of of, of elaborating on their astral religion. It, 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 ex- exactly, or at least at least we were starting to move from that. But in, in Calvin's world, who's not one of these guys, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna use that terminology. Mm-hmm. Calvin believes that Matthew paints the star as an extraordinary star. But it, it is something unique. It's not of the natural order. Um, it did unique things, as we talked about, yeah, in guiding right. them to Jesus. <laughs> and but I think these are big questions for Calvin to ask. Yeah, sure. And so, you especially know, in a situation where they they see it as a historical fact, and then they're taking a very literal approach to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so to, to place Calvin in the context of the scientific revolution, so Nicholas Copernicus publishes in 1543 on his revolution uh, on the revolution of celestial bodies, which puts the sun at the center of the universe instead of the Earth. 1543. Calvin's dates are what 1509 to 1562. Mm-hmm. So. You know, right during Calvin's lifetime right. are some of the first things that are changing how they understand um, how the world works. And even then, um, there's still they're, the telescope isn't being used quite yet. Mm-hmm. And so everything they're, they're still watching. It's there's, really more mathematical calculations. It is mathematical yeah. calculations. And, and to make this work, he has to do these little epicycles because they think that they think that the spheres also make perfect circles around. Uh. Now he's arguing the sun, mm-hmm. but there's still perfect circles mm-hmm. because cir- the circles are perfect and the spheres are perfect. Well, that doesn't work, and he no. doesn't have right. the idea of the ellipses figured out yet. Um, so they didn't really fully understand uh, heavenly bodies, and they did not see the stars as, as um, other suns, if you will. Now, in many of the cases, some of these ideas are put forward in the ancient world, but they kind of fell into disuse during... Um, and, during the medieval period. And so that by the time you get to the early modern people, they don't necessarily pick up on this. So, for example, Giordano Bruno, uh, one of the famous early astronomers, would be burned at the stake for heresy when he argues that the sun was a star. And this was in 1600. Mm-hmm. This is after Calvin's death. Yeah. And it's not until 1609 that Galileo will invent the telescope. And remember that Galileo will be put on house arrest by the Roman Inquisition, that's a papal inquisition, in 1634 for maintaining that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe. Yeah. So, 
putting it, so I think it's just super sophisticated that Calvin, within the context of this very strange emerging science, science is asking some of these really big questions. Yeah, he's, again, he's, he shows himself to be ahead of his time. Mm-hmm, he really does. Mm-hmm. In the end, Calvin says, quote, since it is certain that astrology is confined to the limits of nature, the Magi could not have been led by it alone to come to Christ. Um, and so, another thing that comes up um, is the king baby. You know, and Calvin does make some big deal about this idea that the baby is a king Mm -hmm. Um, because kings are not identified as kings as babies unless they are somehow crowned as kings. So this is someone born as a king. Um, And and he he, he sees this as significant as the Magi um, see this as a sign as a future reign, that he's not in charge of a government, if you will, before. So born a king, he is unique. Um, and that's an interesting take on this, um, you know, where is the one who is the newborn king of Israel that, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's an interesting mm-hmm. take on that it phrase. Is. It yeah. is. And so, and, and claims that actually the Magi weren't there to worship so much as just to identify him as in that king role. Um, quote, he, probably they grasped no more of his character than that he was to be a man endowed with exceptional power and dignity, a man deservedly to win over people and admire and revere him. Yeah, so. and that's that's where, you know, I, I brought out the idea that there was probably a double nuance between paying homage yeah. and worshiping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's Calvin's take on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Calvin's ministry, I think, is important is this baby wasn't in public ministry yet mm-hmm. and, and came through Jewish an- ancestry and was not fully known to the world. Um, it seems almost like a trust, the working of a spirit is how I described it. So um, I want to point out here that the period of com- in this period, the commentators have some believing the Magi went when Jesus was a baby as in a staple at right. Bethlehem, right? right? The lore that comes down to us, it seems like this is more typical of the 17th century than what comes from the reformers, especially Calvin and Luther. Hmm. And I was trying to figure this out because Calvin and Luther are like, nope, this is a child. They, they understand this, mm-hmm. but the lore comes from a Roman Catholic tradition. So Erasmus still is seeing this, you know, coming to see the baby Jesus, the whole three Kings, the whole, and, and we know he's a fine thinker. Um, and then I, I thought perhaps it kind of reemerges in the in the in the Anglican Church, and even even in the 17th century when we're having this kind of debate between the Puritans and uh, you know what will become the Anglicans. But remember that that tradition comes back in that Roman Catholic tradition in the in the Anglican Church, and I think it gets picked up then in popular culture and just becomes kind of part of the assumption of mm, the truth. Yeah, and that's my guess as to how it kind of comes to us in the, in the English speaking tradition. Right. right. Um, One of the things I found, and and just for everybody's information, um, Ulrich Luz has a commentary in the Hermonia series on Matthew's gospel. And one of the features of that commentary is for every section he does, he goes in great depth into the history of interpretation of the passage mm-hmm. throughout Christian history. It's mm-hmm. pretty fascinating. Oh, mm-hmm. And he, he points out that, um, um, 
There were a lot of people in earlier times who thought of a time two years after the birth, but it was Augustine who established that it was the 13th day after the birth, mm. and that came to be the accepted tradition in, yep. in, the, in the medieval period. But, but here's Calvin, <clears throat> who's such an uh, Augustine fan, and right. yet Calvin is like, no. Yeah. And so... Right. This is interesting, though, but but the Roman Catholic Church continues that right, tradition, and right. as I said, I think really gets picked up then into. They're basically into there at his tradition. birth. Well, yeah. and yeah. and isn't that beautiful, right? And of course, you have to think of Calvin too. So underplays Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a special day, and so these these scriptures and this doesn't become doesn't become the center that it becomes later later on in mm-hmm. in, the, in the church, particularly any other tradition, right? Yeah. I think that anyway. So that's really a, a nice, a nice set of commentaries there. Um. So another thing they talked about were Herod and his power. So, um, in Calvin's writing, Herod is both an actual figure and a power symbol, uh, a symbol for power. Um, so Calvin first an- analyzes the person of Herod, um, and in, in a historical framework, Calvin believes that Herod is so full of himself and so confident in his own power um, and that power of his lineage that he, ha- he has just ignored the prophets. So Herod, but however, is familiar with the process and the coming of Jesus kind of re- reawakens his fear. Mm. You know, this idea of, oh, wow. <laughs> something somebody is really going to challenge mm-hmm. my power. Mm-hmm. And Calvin believes that Herod's response is directly related to the reawake, reawakening of the prophecies um, when he hears about the baby Jesus. Um, and Cal- Calvin actually claims that Herod's reign was opposed by God. Mm. Wow. And it leads to Herod's panic and fear. But beyond this historical kind of analysis, Calvin sees Herod as a representative of all who hold power, unjust power over others. And Herod, like so many others, are happy to go along with the ideals of the faith as long as it supports their position. In other words, Herod was okay with Jewish tradition as long as it supported his greed. And so you can see this kind of... um, um, maybe part of the the status quo with the temple hierarchy can just kind of living in status quo with Herod, allowing Herod to do his own thing. Right. The temple's allowed to do their own thing, right. and so the corruption continues. I, you know, from what he's saying here, I don't know this, but I, I have to. It, it sounds like Calvin is reading Josephus for his Jewish history because I oh, would, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, because this was this this all kind of tracks with with the way Herod was perceived. Yes, in that absolutely, day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and. and and he does not cite so Josephus in this particular part of the commentaries, but he often does. Okay, and yeah. he'll um, so definitely that's who he's looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, so likewise, the child was not a problem until he threatened Herod's position. So um, Herod is a symbol for all who are blind to Christ, all who are willing to go along with the faith as long as they can manipulate it to support the power. Um, so, uh, and he, then, of course, he picks on the Roman Catholic Church as being an example of this. <laughs> of course he does, right? Right. Um, and then Jerusalem is another piece there. Um, and Calvin um, believed, and, and remember I mentioned that I was the one in reading this, skipped over this mention of all of Jerusalem mm-hmm. went along with Herod. Mm-hmm. Um, but Calvin goes out of his way to mention it, and that um, why did Jerusalem go along? Um 
was it because it was just alarming? That was one of his idea. Was it just that big? Or um, second was that people had become complacent, kind of this idea that they were, they were living in the status quo. This was going to cause uprisings. This was going to cause uh, friction. Um, this is going to cause people to split apart even more. It was going to break down the establishment. And maybe that's why. Um, I found uh, Wolfgang Musculus, we've had him before, comments that he um, believed people feared Herod so much that they were just likewise troubled. So, and then finally, um, the sending of the Magi. And um, Calvin spent some time talking about the miracle of Jesus and his family um, escaping Herod's wrath his destruction of the children, and knowing from prophecy that the child is allowed to live, he would restore the throne of David. And the response was not to turn on adults, if you will, and wage war on adults, but rather wage war against God. Mm. And so Richard Ward, who's an Anglican priest of the 17th century, so this is later, argues that in counseling with the Magi, Herod showed an evil intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that this wasn't some kind of that this this intent was he had planned to if you will wage war on god by destroying all of these children well and it does say he met with them secretly and and mm-hmm. th- th- that word secretly could have this kind of uh, deceptive implication mm-hmm. yeah and musculus i thought this was interesting calls hair not a fox but a wolf pelt <laughs> Which I thought was a really, um, and I, I, I did not a lot of, of looking, but um, it, it does seem to have some imagery there in terms of what a, how a wolf pelt would de- mm-hmm. differ from a fox, somebody who was really being um, very um, um, deceitful. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Um, it's interesting that most, and as I said, it's most reformers agreed that Herod had planned to kill the innocents long before sending the Magi, which I kind of mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um but Calvin asked a different questions. Why did no Jews accompany the Magi? And he's the only one I found that asked that question. If you will, foreigners went to see him, but not those in Jerusalem. Um, did they fear Herod's displeasure? displeasure? Asked Calvin. Um, Luther's response is that they were just not important enough. If the, and he didn't really ask the question the same way, but he noted, he goes, they weren't important enough to go. If they uh-huh. were, the, the, the Magi weren't important enough. If they were kings, oh, then they would have accompanied them. But, I see. But remember, he kind of underplays who they are. Right. Anyway, uh, Calvin didn't go there. Calvin sees them as, as learned astrologers, people that are you know, a little more important than that. So, um, According and then and finally at the gifts according to Calvin the tradition uh, th- these traditional ones are not are not concrete that we talked about that gold kingship you know we just talked about incense priesthood myrrh death but rather that that's that's a tradition that doesn't really hold up um, but he did make this final point that the magi are still kind of identifying uh, the Christ child in terms of of human terms by giving these human gifts instead mm-hmm. of spiritual ones. Mm-hmm. So very fun, very fun set of commentaries. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Christy. Hi everybody. During our during our break, Alan and I were talking about really some of the difficulties of 
talking and preaching this this account um, when it is so core to kind of the the lore surrounding Christian Christian birth um, Jesus um, and that we've come to think about it in in this kind of way of the perfect Christmas world you know our little nativity sets with our little king sitting there with the shepherds and everyone's really happy and um, it, it does add some some complications and so I was going to have Alan talk about some of the things we were just just talking about ourselves about about the nature of this of this story. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, you know, when it, because because we're dealing with scripture here, um, I think a lot of us are like the reformers in that we want to see this as literally historical, and that this is a you know Matthew is recounting events that actually happened, and you know I, I would say. For the most part, when we're talking about the gospel traditions, I, I think that's what we're dealing with, you know, is, is we're, we're talking about um, events in Jesus' life. Um, we may not be able to know all the details of what Jesus actually did and said because there's some variety among the gospels, but I, I think we have a pretty good outline. And so, um, you know, when it comes to establishing the historical Jesus, sort of, you know, there are, there are two schools of thought. Some people say, and this is the this is the Jesus seminar. They say we exclude everything that we can't confirm, you know, right. by strict methods of historiography. Others would say, well, no, let's take what we can confirm by strict methods of historiography, and let's use that as a basis mm-hmm. for then seeing is there coherence with the rest of the. Uh, of the of the materials Mm -hmm. so and you have this basic coherence in the gospels i would say that's that's my approach to the history you know the historical jesus Mm -hmm. but when we're dealing with the infancy narratives we're dealing with something altogether unique right right and and especially when we're talking about a star that travels that, that leads Magi from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and directs them to the exact place where Jesus was staying. You know, th- th- this is something that, you know, could not have happened literally, okay? Right, uh, right. Despite the fact that there are people, you know, um, scientists and, and scholars who, who do try to, to make that case still today. Um, um, it just doesn't seem, it seems like they're missing the point here. And so the, 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 the category that we're dealing with here may be that of what the Jewish people called Haggadah. And Haggadah was a story that was told, say, about Moses that was meant to illustrate a truth from the Torah. It, it was not in scripture, but it was, a, it was it's sort of like mm-hmm. a parable, really. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, obviously, Jesus made extensive use of parables. And, and with few exceptions, most New Testaments, you know, most people who, who look at these don't have any assumption that the, the parables were related to an actual historical fact. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, can we extend that idea of parabolic truth here? to Matthew and Luke's infancy narratives, mm-hmm. um, especially this one, and you know, especially this, 
this account in Matthew that is so that has so, some you know these such problematic issues right, you know with right. with um, who are these magi coming from the east and where do they come from and, and right. how is it that this star is able to direct them to right. this precise place in Bethlehem where where Jesus is is you know right. so that they can right. worship him um, uh, you know even the early church wrestled with this and right. and as I mentioned you know Chrysostom believed that there was some sort of phenomenon that the star actually descended from the sky and right, came down right. over the place where That's Jesus what people was. Have, and they try to do that, right? Right. It's, like, it's an asteroid of some kind. Or, or, it's a, or, you know, the early church believed it was an angel and it, it was, you know, that, that, that was really what was going on right. was that it was an angel that was directing them. Uh, so even in the early church, they recognized that this was a problem. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, going back to our discussion, it gets back to what you were talking about, you know, missing the forest for the trees. It's so easy to get caught up in stuff like that, mm-hmm. that we miss, miss the point it. of the passage. And the point of the passage is that, that this is about who Jesus is. Right. And, and, that, and it's introducing themes in the gospel that Matthew uh, feels like are important. If I, if, as I've been approaching this one and also the, the one for next week, um, um, or I guess last week in, in terms of the, in terms of the right. order, right. Um, just been to ask the question, well, why did Matthew include it? Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't have to include it. You didn't have to, do, to include it to talk about all the things Jesus did. I mean, obviously, Mark doesn't even have an infancy narrative, so why include this and um you know calvin says oh because it's part of the historical you know and but i think you're right i think there's more actually think there's more to it than that as some kind of historical marker rather that it's to convey um it's to convey something else well again we saw from the very beginning of matthew's infancy narrative that the that that Matthew is keen to demonstrate that Jesus yep. is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the Messiah. And and that's, you know, one of the main issues here right. is to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of David because right. he was born in Bethlehem. Yes. But another issue I think here is that that Matthew wants us to see that God's redemptive purpose is not limited to the Jewish I people. I agree. The but whole it is, Gentile it is intended from the from even before the mm-hmm. beginning to include the Gentiles, mm-hmm. and and so he 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 brings this story in to right. show that already right. these these Gentiles from the East, these learned yep. scholars, whoever they were, right. are repre- representatives of the Gentile world coming to pay yeah. homage and or in Matthew's worldview worship. Right. The newborn king. Right. Yeah. So there's this recognition. And that's really huge because you don't really see, you know, you don't really think about, when you think about just the early church, you think about the Jewish church, you think about Acts is coming on. Oh, first the Jews and then the Gentiles mm-hmm. and, and Paul coming out and eventually, right? right? I mean, this is a, this is a Here really we have the Gentiles. Piece, right the here. Gentiles are right here from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But when you think about this being being written, if you will, after Paul's letters, sure. right? Then you're thinking about this need to make sure that this is emphasized in early church. Well, and I think you know, I mean, the the, the notion goes back to to the prophets, especially Isaiah. So the notion notion yes, predates this, right, right? Exactly. And so I think that's kind of what Matthew to me this is what Matthew was trying to demonstrate because you know we talked about his formula quotations. This took place in order to fulfill that which mm-hmm. was spoken by the prophet. You know I I don't remember the exact exact 
statistics, but I believe half of Matthew's formula quotations are in his infancy narrative. And, you know, so a big part of what Matthew is trying to accomplish in his infancy narrative is to say that, you know, yes, Jesus is the one who fulfills this redemptive purpose that was announced by the prophets, you know, mm-hmm. Isaiah and others uh, in, in the past. And so, um, you know, this is a part of what Matthew is emphasizing here because, and you know, I, th- I think especially about the story of the of the murder of the innocents and the flight to Egypt mm-hmm. and the fact that he's from Nazareth. Again, this gives Matthew, Matthew uses this to show that, Hey, Jesus fulfilled these fulfilled, scriptures by doing absolutely. this. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and that you know that that legitimizes Jesus for many people. Maybe that are are questioning or saying, "Well, what about this? Or what about that? Or uh, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of after all the people are gone that were actually witnesses to it. Who who's there to who's there to defend mm-hmm. it? You know, mm-hmm. so the scriptures do that kind of surely, in a way. yeah, surely, and you know. Uh, Honestly, unfortunately, what happens, in, especially in the early second century, is that the church fathers go to seed on this particular argument, and they mm-hmm. use the proof from prediction as confirmation that Jesus must have been who he, he was believed to be. And I think they took that too far, because I don't think that's what Matthew was doing here. Mm-hmm. Matthew, was, Matthew was pointing to, to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive yeah, purpose, yeah, yeah. which had already been you know, right. uh, announced by the prophets before. Not that it was predicted exactly what would happen, but that right. but that Jesus was truly fulfilling God's saving right, purpose. So right. the hopes of, right. for salvation, the hopes for redemption right. were coming to pass in Jesus. I think that's what I, Matthew was I, doing. Yeah, I do too. So here's this, and in fact, now that we are talking about it, we're kind of processing at the end i keep thinking how much richer this is than just fitting it in as yet another little block <laughs> right. in the in the nativity scene right. Right. but rather that this is really an announcement for what we're going to come into later yes indeed. and uh, well and we shouldn't miss i think here especially the fact that the magi called him the king of the jews i think in matthew is a neon sign pointing us straight to the passion narrative. yeah oh i agree because i agree that's the only other place really where where Jesus is called King of the Jews, right? By gen- by Gentiles, and of course, in, a, in the situation where he's being he's being executed, right? Well, and I think this whole thing of the the one I skipped over, Herod and all of Jerusalem, right. also is pointing to that too. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, thanks, Alan. It's Thank fun. you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.